All right, I want to begin with prayer and just ask the Father, uh, my Father in heaven, to bless. Uh, Lord, you're good, you're kind. I, again, you allowed me to see your hand of mercy and grace extended today and ask for your blessing right now. We're going to look at your word closely and dig in, knowing that there's an inherent blessing in just reading this book of prophecy. Ask you for wisdom that we would rightly handle your word and honor it as the living, breathing word uh, that comes right out of your heart. Uh, I thank you, and it is by faith I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, <clears throat> there's the paragraph. Let me read this to you. Kind of soak this up. Think of a court, Jan, you're, you're in the legal world. Think of a courtroom scene, a judge. Think of all these people. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. All right. So the author, we're starting to kick in some symbolism. Let's look at some pictures here. This is an ancient scroll, and it is layered and deteriorated. Look how closely those things are bound. You can imagine what would happen to that if you tried to open it. It is a painstaking and slow process to moisten and peel back. They've developed a new technology that does a kind of digital scan where they're able to look inside. And because of the, the footprint that the, uh, uh, the ink leaves, they can begin to read a document and never open it. It's an amazing technology, how they're able to examine ancient documents. Here's another one, a severely charred. They were able to discern those letters. Andrew, I know you can read those. Uh, alpha, beta, you can see that, so, okay. Uh, there's an image, an artist's rendering of a scroll with seven seals, okay? It would look something very much like that. The, this, the scroll was bound with a string or a, or a very small rope and then a, uh, a portion of wax pressed into that to hold those cords together and then a signet ring was pressed into the warm wax identifying the person that is authorizing it and sealing it. There's another look at what a scroll would potentially look like if it were intact, okay? And by the way, they actually have discovered scrolls like this. So this is not just some artist rendering. We have no archeological evidence. There is evidence of these things. So all right, what do we make of uh, the scroll and the idea here? So. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is God, 
a book or a scroll, it's biblion. And so that's why it's translated book. And uh, it was written inside and on the back. So on the recto, the front side, and the verso on the back side in Latin. By the way, I, I want to, I hope you appreciate what I'm about to tell you. That after years of study, and you know, you get credentialed and you get your bachelor's and you get your master's, and sometimes you go and get your PhD, and you're working with Greek and Hebrew and Latin, and you work and work, and then sometimes all of your education comes together in such a salient moment that when you read verse one, you realize this is where theology just explodes off the page. God is right handed. Thank you for chuckling, Terry. I built that up to try to really make it funny, hoping to sneak one in. Rick, yeah, you, thank you. A little nod back there. Boy, I had you. I either had you or I totally lost you is what happened. Okay, I, I thought God was right-handed. So, okay. So, <laughs> thank you. All right, moving on to more in-depth matters in the book of Revelation. Uh, he's sitting on the throne holding the scroll written inside and uh, certainly on the back. What are your thoughts? Why would a scroll have writing on both sides? Has any, what's that? Economy. Economy. In a way, Terry, you're spot on. It's very difficult to write, to, to buy papyrus or to buy vellum or parchment, which is an animal skin. And typically, uh, the, the discipline, the convention, was that you would write on one side of the papyrus with, uh, made from the reeds out of the delta in Egypt. And it was typically the way the fibers ran horizontally, that would be the recto side because it was just easier to write, all right, on that side. Now, when someone had to write on the back side, they did so because they were literally running out of room and there was more to say. So the language that it's, that it's written uh, completely on the front and the back is saying there is a comprehensive uh, there is a very full message written on this document, all right? And uh, that it is sealed with seven seals is very significant. So there's, there's some historical data that we've got to work with. So let's push, okay? I want you to drill on that concept of the scrolls. All right, I saw on the right hand of God, the scroll written, it's a book, front and back. All right, here we go. Option one, it's a last will and testament. Now, according to Roman law, if I went to the local magistrate, a governor's office, and I, were go I was going to establish a Jan, my will, all right? Upon doing that and completing all the documents, I am required, according to Roman law, to use five and or oftentimes seven witnesses. All right, so the document is written, it's all been verified and, and put on record, and seven people, a string is tied, wax is poured, and my friend John presses his ring on it. Another a series of strings are wrapped and tied, and my friend Bill verifies, and he's a witness. And I have seven friends that verify this document. Now, upon my death, Everyone knows if it is this type of writing that my seven friends must all go to the magistrate's office 
and verify their, their signet ring with, their, with that seal. And once all seven witnesses were present, then the seals were broken and the testament was engaged and my dying wishes or my will had to be executed as agreed. All right, does that make sense? So if you're a first century person living in Asia Minor and someone said, oh, there's a scroll with seven seals, they're gonna go, oh, that's the last will and testament. That's easy. Yeah, that's what that is, you know. Now we don't think that way. We, we tend to uh, uh, grab at our culture. Now, there's another kind of writing, uh, a, a governing testimony or testimonium praetorium. And this, this is, Jan, when, uh, when the original board of witnesses dies unavailable, the government intervenes and a second uh, board of, of witnesses can be engaged and uh, civil law can kick in here. And there, this is really thick, but there are some documents, some, some scrolls with so much legal jargon, Jan, but again, seven seals. It's another part of it, uh, a book of redemption. That's what this is about. It's, it's the book of life, and literally the names of the saints are written on this book. It's a military document. They, uh, Terry, would uh, have seven seals. Tell us about how documents were transmitted in the Navy when you were serving, and how those documents were made secure. Uh, the commanding officer would write out an order. It would be put into an envelope. He would sign his name across the, where the envelope is sealed. Uh, it would then be put into a briefcase and locked with a combination lock that the courier who was going to carry it did not know the combination. The only person that knew the combination would have been the recipient of that particular order. Yeah. Uh, the higher the classification, in some cases, it would be handcuffed to the courier, and the courier would not have the keys to the handcuff. And that was to ensure that nobody was going to alter that document that this was uh, the true order from the commanding officer to yeah. his support. Yeah. And that is, that is absolutely in this identical spirit of these Greco-Roman seals. No one could open the document and alter it even no one could open it just to read it. They were not allowed to do that. Okay, couldn't, couldn't touch it, all right. Um, a collection of oracles and judgments. And when you, when you look at the seals, and we'll start in chapter six, it's not pretty. <laughs> a, a, a seal is open, judgment happens. A seal is open, judgment happens. So it's very, very serious, okay. Um, what do you think? Do you think it's the last will and testament? One. You think it's one? Yes. Yeah. Why does that appeal to you? Well, because we know if you've read Revelation, what comes after that reopens yeah. the pronouncement of judgment. So yes. It obviously contains what is to come. I don't know if will would be the right word, but that's yeah. kind of all the list up there, that would be. Yeah. It really does make sense. And a lot of scholars argue that the language of a last will and testament is in play here. In fact, Jan, it's, it's even argued this has to do with property rights. Can I soak that up? Property rights. Do you understand that if you're a Christian, you've been bought 
by the blood of the Lamb? Well, a will is only if someone has died or the only ones that so Jesus they have died. To, right, right, right. But purchased, but we are purchased by his blood. Right. And redemption is made secure upon his death. I mean, there's a whole chapter in the New Testament about this. Okay. So if I am purchased by the blood of the Lamb and upon his death, the will is literally activated, it's enforced now, then Jesus has a right to come and claim me. He owns me now. That is grace at a level that is, it's beautiful. When you see that and believe that you've been bought by the blood of the lamb, then when Jesus Christ returns, he's coming for his own. And that is absolutely uh, an image of grace. Is is this a big, heavy government document, a military document? I don't think it's. I don't think it's a testamentum praetorium. I don't think it's that book of redemption. Yes, military document. I'm going to say a little bit yes, because the oracles, the seven judgments, the four horses. I mean, they're judgments against the enemy, against the unbelieving, against Rome. So Terry, there is there is a polemic. Remember our word polemic. There's a military strategy here. Uh, it's real. Judgment is coming, and Revelation is certainly about that. Is it the oracles? Yes, absolutely. So, all right, let's keep going. So, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. In Aramaic Hebrew, what is written, loud voice, this is actually a a verbatim translation into, into English from Greek. A great voice, a loud voice. Now, why would a strong angel need to proclaim with a loud voice? Why do you think? Are they hard of hearing in heaven? Why would he do that? He's speaking with authority. Very much with authority. In fact, the word proclaimed here is caruso. And that is almost like a town crier. All right? You can stand in the square and you're going to announce something to the village. When you think of this as a throne room, as a courtroom chan, this strong angel uses a loud voice. It is as though he's saying, all of creation, all four corners of the universe, you pay attention to what I'm saying. And he uses this great voice, this loud voice, to communicate this question. Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? All right. Uh, who is worthy? Um, the word worthy is axios. Axios. It's where we get our word in philosophy, axiology, which means how do you know something has worth? Can you weigh something and make a judgment that this thing is better than that thing? Why do you think that? Have you ever noticed that some people, uh, you know, they've got stuff in their garage and all they want to do is take it to the dumpster. But you put it out by the street and someone thinks that your junk has worth and they place value on things you're willing to throw away, and they'll pay you money for it. That's because of a concept of worth. You and I probably are thinking moral perfection. Who is morally perfect, and in their moral perfection has a right to open the scroll? That is really not what's in mind. Uh, Terry, this this would be very similar to a military concept, that there are certain people of elite rank who have privilege, okay? The admiral of a ship, (laughs) if he wants to turn the ship around, he can do that. Uh, 
and the little guy down in the boiler room or doing laundry doesn't have a right, doesn't have the worth to say where the ship's going to turn. Someone in authority. That's the language here, that Jesus Christ is really the one who has worth by virtue of social status, of honor status. Of course, he's morally perfect. That's assumed. But in this context, Jesus is actually worthy by virtue of his status to break these seals. We've already covered what those seals mean. So and no one uh, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look at it. Why the three levels of heaven or the three levels of creation? Why? Absolutely. Is under the earth hell? You know, uh, if you're an ancient Hebrew, if you're an ancient Hebrew, your concept of hell is a little different than ours. Okay. Uh, they believed in a shadowy world. It's called Sheol, yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, think of Lord of the Rings and Middle Earth. You're getting close at it. Tolkien picked up on that idea from the ancient Hebrew people. Yeah, so uh, Kirby, you've got it. It's using language that this is a comprehensive cry to all of creation, the entire created order. Who can open this scroll? Evidently, this scroll is really important. If it wasn't, the strong angel, uh, and by the way, that doesn't mean he has big muscles. It implies rank and authority as well. A high-ranking angel in the hierarchy. Gabriel, we do not know. Michael, we do not know. Uh, But he is high-ranking and has very much authority. And so he's comprehensive all over the earth. And no one, no one in heaven. Now, it's interesting. Is God in heaven? Is he in the throne room? Sure. You'd think he would be worthy, right? Now, if you're thinking moral perfection, well, of course he is. And I'm sure the Holy Spirit, well, of course. But again, it's not about moral perfection. That's assumed. It's about a unique position. It's about a unique assignment. And that only belongs to Jesus. So God himself is abrogating or stepping back and saying, this is about my son. This is not about me. Saints that are dead and buried. Good, that's good. Saints walking the earth, saints in heaven. Sure, sure. Uh, think of, think about that, Rebecca. All the priests, all the saints, all the martyrs, the people that we would be in awe to be around. The prophets are not worthy. They do not have the position and the, the authority and the status with God to be able to open this scroll and to look into it. And then it's interesting that John begins to weep. And he weeps greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. And by the way, that's an imperative verb. That's a command. He's saying, here's some Kleenex. You know, he is not saying, 
here's some Kleenex, you know, let me daub your cheek a little bit, and come on, let's kind of calm down. He's given an order. He's saying, stop. Stop it right now. That's enough, okay? Behold, and why is he giving the imperative? Because the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, a descendant of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Tremendous encouragement is given. All right. Do any of you see grace in this concept? An elder giving encouragement? The lion, of, uh, or the, the, the worthy one being associated with the line of Judah and a descendant of the root of David? Do you see grace in that? Sonship. But our sonship was called through Jesus. Yeah. And we were all slaves, and even still slaves until we had come to the knowledge of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And so I kind of see this parallel sure. between Galatians and this, yeah. where he's showing the grace because you don't think anybody can open it. Yeah. Just like if you were even a slave, you still can't do anything about it. Yeah. yeah. But the one who can call that. Sure. Yeah, that is so good, Cody. Uh, you ready to test some of your skill sets? Do you remember? Who are the 24 elders? Pop quiz. Now, some of you, this is your first time. Do you recall? Who are the 24 elders that are around the throne worshiping? The 12 prophets from the Old Testament. Right. The 12 Okay, very good. We conclude that it's probably a really fair and reasonable interpretation. The 12 figureheads of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Okay. Isn't it interesting that one of them goes to encourage John? Isn't that interesting? Yeah. You can see the humanity of that. Um, does that remind you potentially? Now remember, if you're in one of the seven churches... Are you under persecution? Yes. Sure, sure. There would be tremendous value in someone putting a hand on your shoulder and saying, hey, it's okay to stop crying. It's okay. Because of the lion from the tribe of Judah. Do you see any grace? The, the two descriptors that John uses are the Lion of Judah in the Root of David. Do you see grace in that? Why do you see grace, Kirby? You read these stories concerning David and Judah, you quickly realize they were not perfect people. No, no moral perfection <laughs> is assigned to David. That guy wrote Psalm 51, yeah. you know? And, and you look at the history of Judah and the rebellion and all the difficulties that, that they experienced. And yet, God is not ashamed 
to describe his son as the lion of the tribe of Judah or the root of David. And he's overcome. So has to open the book and it's seven seals. I see grace in that, profound grace. I do. Uh, Philippians chapter two. There's going to come a time when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that includes every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, Rebecca, and every one of those people will confess. So, uh, and I believe that applies to believers as well as non-believers who one day will confess. So, okay, we're doing good. Um, Pull it into our world today. Let's make the 2,000 year leap forward. Uh, A scroll, it's mysterious. Oracles of judgment, hope of redemption, property rights, last will and testament. Jesus has died but came back to life and he wants his property. He wants what's his. That's me and you. That's those who have been born again. How do we pull this into our world today? What difference can it make in our lives? Stop leaving. Stop complaining. Remember the hope. Yeah. It's a message. We all know what's going on with the everywhere and everything. There is a time to stop weeping, isn't it? At least about some things. You know? Yep. And that doesn't mean we should never cry. And certainly there are things that happen that will make us cry. But regarding the big, big picture of life, uh, eternal life, in heaven. Uh, there's something real in us that can actually help us stop crying. Yeah, that's good. Someone else, what are your thoughts? Chris, I think about um, this passage and it makes me think about uh, different life events that occur our lives and oftentimes I find myself imitating John and that I should know who's going to answer these events in both good and bad but uh, I don't see it clearly and then I react and then someone wiser is saying Jesus is right behind this you should see that in, in, the, in everything and so I, I think there's some wisdom in that uh, when things come up, whether good or bad, try to remember in each of those who's behind the legal and all. Mm, that's so good. For Don't me. run to trying to solve or take credit for the thing at hand. Yeah, yeah. Do you think is it curious, Philip, that John, who is mysteriously teleported to the throne room? John wrote the Gospel of John. Do you think he knows about Jesus? Do you think he knows about the Lamb? Isn't it interesting that for this that this text includes this idea that John is not sure, and for a moment he weeps. Well, and 
What's that? Of, of all people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, of course, the question then is, is, is John being presented as one who weeps because, not because he's a doubting fool, which would, which would be something I would be guilty of, but that he's symbolic of us. This is a symbolic moment where John represents, he's just very, very human, just like me, just like you. And we forget sometimes, Philip, don't we? Yeah. That's good. Someone else, why does this matter? Does an heir have property rights? Right. We have access rights into heaven. And it's saying before that, because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit into us, crying out, Abba, Father. Mm-hmm. So yeah. maybe we think even, you know, we've got to work towards it, to move towards it, and yeah. it's like, now it's all been set up, so it's all yeah. for you. Yeah. That once you have yeah. adopted, So good. So good. Someone else, why does this matter? How do we live this out? Turning purpose to weeping because we're not worthy. And the reason why I ask that is imagine if you could rewrite it and then say, um, and then I began to leap for joy because I realized that the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome and opened the book. And so if you just do it that way, but take out take out the idea that he's <coughs> contemplating that there is actually no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth that he can that is worthy. Yeah. Yeah. So it changes it if you say it's a mistake that he makes to to forget about Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And yet, here's what's cool, Andrew, when, when verse 6 kicks in and the rest of the chapter, they do what you just described. It's like they get it. And it triggers a worship event and ancient hymns are sung, right. which is the whole point. So my question is, can you get to that point? Can you get to that elevated place of worship without greatly weeping? No. So that's, no. that's yeah. what I'm you're, yeah, I, I think. Why look at this as a mistake? Like yeah, yeah. A mistake. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, not a mistake. No, no, I see it as being human. Um, uh, remember the parable Jesus gave that the one who is forgiven little, how does he love? He loves little. And the one who's forgiven much loves much. That's the whole point. That when you get to the point in your life when you realize. Uh, and this is where this is where we can get get pointed with it, how morally corrupt we really are. And and, and forget about the outside behaviors. What about the inside stuff? 
just the junk that goes on between our ears, attitudes, uh, ideas, uh, you know, what we think through the windshield of the car as we're executing people in our airspace or whatever. Uh, you, get, you get the idea that there's so much internal corruption that if we took a real honest look at ourselves, we would weep. We would realize how disqualified we are. And uh, you have Isaiah, Andrea, where God replaces beauty for ashes. But the beauty is only appreciated because it's coming out of ashes. And when we think... <laughs> When we think God is lucky to have us, we miss it all. We are somehow our own saviors and our own messiahs, and that's some nasty stuff. So Andrew's right. John's broken, and he is representative of all humans. Yeah. And boy, when verse 6 kicks in, a lamb is, is presented who appears to be slain. It's going to be beautiful So. Okay, someone else will finish it up. I got another thought while listening to people talk. Mm -hmm. Do we live our lives with the assumption that everything has been made right and will be made right in the in the end of times? Like there will be a great trial. There will be judgment and we're starting to see that if so it takes a lot of pressure off of you from doing the right thing because you know all things will be made right yeah so yeah. live your life in peace and humility as you go about doing the righteous thing because yeah. god will make it right as yeah. you see in revelation yeah um i have many clients who were radically abused by highly religious parents. Okay? And Rick, you know what that does to a kid's brain. And uh, for some of them, they would experience radical abuse on Saturday and would have to hide bruising by how they dressed and makeup on Sunday morning when they were paraded at church. And these little girls and little boys grow up with acute, morally confusing abuse. Like, why am I being hit? I didn't really do anything wrong. Kids have a great sense of morality. They really do. They, they, they can be fair-minded. They do have that capacity. And when they're being abused, abused far beyond a, a, an offense, they don't have to do with it morally. And it really damages their, their view of life. That eventually carries over in, into adulthood. And then something happens. And this is going to get real personal with us, okay? If we're not careful to remember that our heaven will be experienced in heaven and not on earth, we can't get it early. If we, if we miss that heaven is real and it is coming, we're going to have a hard time with faith on earth. Because with a morally, deeply morally skewed view of life, the scars of abuse, Christian faith on earth doesn't make sense. If there's no happy ending, this thing doesn't make sense. Let's shut it down. Let's close it up. 
Let's cancel the lease. Let's go home and let's party and let's do what you want to make it through the day and, and cycle through another week. But if heaven is real and there is something coming, then fill up. We can remember and hold on and have hope. And so the author of Hebrews 12 says, keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfection, perfecter of your faith. But if we, if we lose sight of heaven, you'll burn out. And you add abuse to that, you're not going to last long at all. Not long at all. Yeah. Colossians 3. Colossians 3. Yeah, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Absolutely. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. Yep, absolutely. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust can't corrupt, where thieves cannot steal. If you lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, you're going to lose it. Yeah. Yeah, we have hope. And by the way, if you're like me, I, I have a superpower. Uh, I'm anxiety boy, and I can jump to the worst conclusion just like that. So I'm very, very good at it. And I have got to remember and focus on the hope that is within me. And if I don't, Philip, I, I get in trouble. I can spiral. I sure can. So... Okay, Lee, you're on to something. So if Canaan represents the promised land, what does Egypt represent? <laughs> yeah, it's like you, you, don't, you don't want to go there. That's the place you're leaving from to go to the promised land. And so Egypt represents spiritual compromise. It's going back to paganism, going back to idolatry, self-worship. And it's the promised land that represents worshiping God. Yeah. And so at that point, the geography matters because it's symbolic. It really matters. So that's so good. So good. You guys have spoken so much grace into me tonight. Thank you. I do have a question pertaining to Roman law. Okay. We had seven friends mm -hmm. certify that your mm -hmm. will is accurate and legal. Yep. And for that will to be after you have died to be certified, all seven of them have to show up. They've got to show up. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, the two of them died in battle, and the other one right. is no longer. Sure, sure, they, they died. Yeah, there, uh, there were laws in place to cover that. Yep. They had secondary laws. Yeah, because that did happen. Yeah. It sure did. 
when yeah. you got a life expectancy of 39 and a half years. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the, in the uh, rural areas, absolutely that young. And then the urban areas, not much older on average. So yeah, high mortality rate, short lifespan. Yep, absolutely. But there were laws in place to cover that. They anticipated that. So. Yes, sir. Um, so over and over and over again, you hear um, the son of David, the son of David, the son mm -hmm. of David, and then here it says the root of David. Mm -hmm. Is there any significance to that? Or yeah, bloodline. Yeah, it's just descendant, lineage. You have a son. Bloodline. It started. Yeah, and you're gonna have a grandson one day, or a granddaughter. You know, and and you have a genealogy that forms. That's what's going on. Yeah, all of these things beginning in Abraham. But I promise in your, your seed will be a great nation. Look up. Look at the stars. Yeah. And we are a part of that. Cody, we've been grafted in. Literally adopted. Adopted in and made heirs. So, yeah. Beautiful. Let's, let's read this together. Uh, by the way, um, a good way to read together is to pay attention to the punctuation. It creates a good rhythm. So you'd read like, <laughs> so I'm, you know, just all, we're, we're working together here, people. Uh, for example, it says, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. It just creates a rhythm. And, <laughs> and, 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 and you know, unity is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So um, uh, the early church would do this, by the way. They would do this a lot and quote things. Uh, in unison, it was beautiful. So, uh, so I, you know, what do you think? Do you think Paul said, "Hey, when you eat that bread and you drink that cup, you're remembering about the hope." That's a little reminder, a little a little crumb off of heaven's table. A little reminder. Yeah, I think so. It's beautiful. So let's read read this thing together. Ready? For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Abba Father, thank you so much for the encouragement that grace brings us, that we who are horribly flawed people, morally, spiritually unqualified, broken people, in ourselves, we are hopeless. But in your son, Jesus, we have been brought near by the blood of the lamb, purchased by his blood, redeemed, moved from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of your beloved son. I want to say thank you. Prepare our hearts to remember and to fix our eyes again on you, Jesus, and the hope that you give us. By faith, I'm asking in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus, amen.